0: I mean, I think that we have an obligation as Christians to see the humanity in other people. I think if we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we also claim that the Imago Dei is imprinted in every single human being. And so that's where I think that we have to start with this stuff, whether we are Democrats or Republicans or independents, it doesn't matter. We we have to see the humanity in other people. That is, to me, that is a non-negotiable as a Christian.
1: Everybody, welcome back to the show. This is I think it's episode 102, and that is insane in and of itself. Before we get started, some announcements. Head over to the website, can I say this at church.com, click on the store button, swing by there, see what you like. I plan to get myself a few things for myself for Christmas. It's another way that you can support the show if you're unable to do patreon or for some reason unable to review the show but there are some fantastic things to grab there. see what you like and that leads me beautifully to a huge thank you to the patron supporters of the show. Uh, if you haven't done that yet, consider clicking that button, going over there seeing at what level there is no right or wrong answer. you feel like if you if you feel led or you feel like this show has done something spoke to you you shared it with a friend, you know whatever that is, consider supporting the show. I am especially thankful for every single one of you this time of year. So yesterday I had to renew everything for the next annual year. It is literally because of you, every single one of you patrons, that that can happen. And so I am so thankful. I have big plans for next year. And so as I alluded to in episode 100, I would love to do a live show somewhere. And so expect a survey to pop up somewhere on the website of some possible places to go. going to have to, you know, hit a critical mass to make that happen, but I would like to make that happen. And so I will make some kind of a poll or something that goes on there, but I would love to do something live and see if we can also get a guest there, um, make something special of it way outside my comfort zone, but I'm really happy to try it. If I've learned anything these past few years, when I get outside my comfort zone, special things happen and I'm excited to try to do that. So enough of that. So If you haven't noticed here, at least in the United States, we are in the middle of a political season. Yesterday at recording this intro, Canada had their election, and I honestly don't know how that went. I should probably look that up. But there's so much talk about air quotes othering, you know, the people in Canada, the people in the United States, the people in Mexico, the people in Colombia or Panama, South Africa, it doesn't really matter. The people on this arbitrary line that are humanity has drawn that says, we are us and they are them. Those lines matter. And they matter all the more as people start to rhetorically talk about what they're going to do to protect our country or what they're going to do to defend against someone else invading the country. But I have news for you. Those borders are arbitrary. They have come and they have been moved. They don't honestly really matter in a kingdom that has its eyes focused on something bigger, such as Jesus Christ. And so the the conversation I had today with Gina Thomas is a conversation about that, but a reframing of it. So what is it like to care for the children that are separated at the border? What are some of the reasons that they're separated? How is the church complicit in that? What does it mean to have human dignity? And then what do we do with all of that? Like literally, what do I do? Because I don't know what to do. So I really hope that you like this conversation. I hope that it moves you in the way that it moved me said this a few weeks ago on social media this book was deeply moving Um, i I think there are a couple reasons for that but so deeply moving and so here we go the conversation about being separated by the border regina thomas Gina Thomas, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah,
1: thanks for um, sending me a copy of your book and being on. And I've really enjoyed engaging with you on social media. Like it's been, I've really enjoyed it. So a lot of people will say they do that and then they never do. So I yeah. appreciate you actually doing that. It's It's been, it's been very, I've enjoyed it. So welcome again.
0: Yeah, right back at you. I'm learning a lot from uh, some of your other shows that I don't know much about contemplative prayer yeah. and the Enneagram and all that good stuff. So I appreciate all the work you do too.
1: Do you like the Enneagram? Very much so. Oh, I still haven't decided if I do. I'm fine with knowing that I'm a five. That doesn't mean I necessarily oh, yeah. like you've, it. You've decided? <laughs> um. Well, so I was talking with my pastor the other day and he's like, dude, you're a five. I was like, why? He's like, the fact that you have to break them all apart 28 different ways <laughs> before you can decide means... <laughs> that's yes. <laughs> I, I was, like, oh, yeah and he was talking not just to me but to other people but I thought about him like you know what I don't think he's wrong but also we talked about like integrating and being healthy and then you know going further along the little triads and I can yeah. see how where when I'm in a bad mood I act a different way and mm-hmm. I think I more often act that way than mm. I do the way I would want to act and um mm-hmm. I also have you know speaking with my wife and a bunch of other things like yeah, the way that I probably act most of the time is not very safe or healthy. So mm-hmm. I got to work on that. But I do it so often. I thought for the longest time that that's what I was, even though it's an unhealthy mm-hmm. version of me. Like it's a very dictatorial, dict hmm. no, dictator, dictatorial. What's the word?
0: I don't know. That's a good question. Authoritarian. Have to look it up. I'm author- a five too. So
1: authoritarian. Yeah, that's it. Uh, like I like like if the kids don't listen, like no 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 listen to me. Mm-hmm. This is what's gonna happen. And if you don't do this, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna tell you why it's gonna happen. But you shut your mouth, you're 10, you know. Um, which <laughs> yep, is yep. not which is not the way that it should work. So that is right. not why that's not why I had you on. So tell me a bit <laughs> about you. This is my favorite question that I ask. What makes you you? What are some of those high points, the low points, and then kind of blend that into what you do today?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I um I I am a five as well. So I really like to research things. I like to understand and observe things. I, My husband and I, we were missionaries in northern Mexico for about four and a half years. Right, We were seven months married when we moved down there. And we ended up starting a coffee shop ministry. It was kind of more like a social business than it was a ministry. But... Um, we started a coffee shop and worked with a local community there, kind of helping out in impoverished area. And I was just really struck by the poverty and really felt uh, unequipped to to even offer any type of solutions, which led me to then uh, go on to get my graduate degree through um, Eastern University and in International Development. And that really was the catalyst for what I do now and where I'm at and why I am Really, just seeking justice. Mm. That is definitely the thing that makes me tick the most. Um, And it always has, but I've never really understood it um, as deeply as I do now. And my first book is all about merging development principles with short term missions practices because, as long term missionaries, we were in northern Mexico and saw just a lot of the damage kind of upfront and personal that could happen when short term teams came and kind of did their own thing. And I struggled with that a lot. Uh, And then um, really the basis of the book comes from the biblical concept of justice. And what is justice? What does that mean? And my conclusion is that most of the time when we do missions work, we're doing charity work rather than than justice work. And so I kind of lay that foundation in my first book, um, which really led me to, to even get involved in fostering to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, which is what we're about to talk about. So. Yeah.
1: Fostering is a big thing. So there's a couple people in my church that do fostering. And I know our church does like a foster ministry mm. where, what do they call it? I'm going to speak way out of turn. And if I get it wrong, you know who you are if you're listening. I'm sorry that I got it wrong because I will see you on Sunday and I apologize. Um, but I won't, I won't put her name on blast here. So it's like, uh, like apparently like one of the big things locally here is if like there's a foster placement, and I'll be real honest, I don't actually know how a lot of that works. You know, you get mm-hmm. that call and you're getting a kid. I hope you're home because mm-hmm. here we come. And they don't really have anything. And so one of the things that my church through this ministry has done, which I think she started along with some other people locally, is there's like a a store of bags for men, women, uh, or whatever the right verbiage is, where there's toiletries, there's underwear, there's clothes, there's toothbrush, there's Mm -hmm. stuff that you need because a lot of the foster parents weren't really expecting that to happen. That's just one of the things. And I'm sure there's so many more things I don't know about. That's awesome. You talk a bit about this a bit in your book, but why fostering? Like how did, how did all of the other stuff that you do in other countries, why did that make you feel called to foster?
0: Yeah. Um, it was quite a journey for me. I uh, started traveling internationally when I was 16 and I had seen a lot of different situations in which there were uh, very impoverished children and I really like desired to adopt from a very young age. I actually had never desired to have children biologically from the moment that I started seeing some of that stuff. And so that desire to adopt when my husband and I got married, I was like, this is a deal breaker, dude. So (laughs) are you in or not? Um, and he very, very willingly said yes. Um, but also wanted to compromise and wanted to, to have at least one child biologically. And so we decided after our first child that we would we would start looking to adopt. And we had our first child in Mexico. And so then we started looking for opportunities to adopt. And at the same time, like I said, I had started the online program, um, that master's degree program. And so I was learning a lot about how little I knew about the region that I lived in and that I came from. And I, I realized that in a lot of my travels, it was easy for me to see the needs of others when I was in another country. And very difficult for me to recognize those very same needs in my own backyard, mm. and so that whole concept of you know white savior life, right? As as my friend Ryan Kujas says, we're all recovering white saviors. Uh, if we can get to that point, that's the best that we can be, and I definitely believe that and feel that I'm I'm there as well. But things did not work out for us to adopt in Mexico, and when we returned to the United States, we started learning more about foster care, and really, that was from just kind of better understanding local needs and recognizing that there are vulnerable children in the United States that need uh, just as much help and support and love as uh, all the black and brown babies that I love to hold mm. and, and show others that I'm holding on, on Facebook, right? So I started kind of researching that and we started um, to take the classes. It took It's a 10-week thing, at least in the county that we took them in. Um, so it's a it's a pretty serious and deep commitment. And then there's like the, uh, several different things that you have to do after that. So it's quite a long process uh, to get involved in. But it's very important, I think, for it to be so long because it's such a difficult journey. And if you're not ready and prepared for it, then it really does a lot of damage for everyone.
1: <laughs> i always just be up front and I may, I may take this out. I don't know. So I wrote a bunch of questions. I did want to talk about white savior, but I think in the book you call it a God complex. Mm -hmm. And I can't say this person's name. So I'm going to try. So you talk about or you're quoting somebody that's quoting someone else of a Jaya Kumar Christian's God complex term that was borrowed from Jürgen Moltmann, which is funny Mm -hmm. because Jürgen Moltmann is a harder name to say than the other one because of all the extra dots. But that's the one I know how to say better. So break that apart a bit, because I think you're right. I have a lot of friends that are not white. And constantly mm-hmm. they're saying, yeah, but look at it through this lens. Like, look at it through mm-hmm. this. Like, you're missing the whole point. Like, I hear what you're saying, Seth, but you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. But that's not like there's a semicolon here and there's 28 sentences after it. So break that that's apart right. a, a bit of how do you view that? Like, what are we doing and how do we not do it?
0: Yeah, um, I think. Um, so that's a Jayakumar Christian who wrote the book. What is the book called? God right. of the Empty Handed. There it is. And um, he he breaks it down as, you know, there's these different areas in life where we kind of become the person in control, the person who has all the answers. And it is a God complex within us. And a lot of times I think for those who have grown up as white American, um, and maybe even Christians, we're very much in a dominant society. And so as white Americans as Christians, you know, all of these things are the majority in our country and in our nation. And uh, it's very easy for us not to see culture. It's easy for us not to see different aspects of what we look at because we're so used to being around other people who look the same as us and who also look at the world the same as we do. And so these God complexes are within us in which basically we play God in the role of other people. And I think it's easier for those who are typically in the dominant group to do this. And then the God complex in the less dominant group is one that says that you're not worthy, right? And so we have these two opposite ends of this balance being where we're rarely ever balanced. And on one side, you know, we're saying we are daughters and and sons of the King, right? And in, in that aspect, we can do whatever we want. Hmm. Um, and on the other side of it, we're saying we are the worst sinners ever. We can never do anything right. Um, and I think that, that the gospel lays out for us a path in between those to recognize that there's a tension between that. And and that there are times when, especially as a white American woman, I think that things are the way that they are for a reason and that they should be this way. Um, but I'm not seeing the whole picture like you were talking about. I'm not seeing um, underlying s- systemic issues, right? Oppression, because I don't have to. I, I'm the one doing that oppression. So I don't have mm-hmm. to see it.
1: Yeah. I want to be real honest for a minute. So the beginning, what, third of your book was really mm-hmm. hard for me to read. So you tell a story yes. about a foster child, Julia, correct? Yes. Julia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, but it's not just like her story singularly is awful. Well, again, I'm choosing to focus. There there are other parts that are not so awful. So mm-hmm. can you kind of describe for those listening that probably have not read the book yet and if you mm-hmm. haven't, go buy it. It's it's a fantastic book, but it will and it'll hurt you, especially if you're someone mm-hmm. like myself that you just don't want to deal with raw emotions. Like it'll it'll hurt. Mm-hmm. I don't think that many people, especially in the West, have any idea what actually happens at the border for immigrants or migrants trying to come across, regardless of their age, but specifically for kids, like the mm-hmm. struggles, the s- sexual parts, like that is just horrendous. Mm -hmm. But as you feel comfortable, what how would you try to describe that for those that haven't read the book Mm -hmm. of, you know, hey, regardless of what you see on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or Google, here's what's actually happening based on your experience.
0: Mm -hmm. There's there's so much to it. It's it's really challenging. and, And I kind of feel bad in a way to generalize a lot of it. But there are so many of these stories that, in Julia's case specifically, she's from Honduras, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence happening there. There's a lot of um, gang activity that's really kind of taking over, in a lot of ways, different aspects of life. And so, specifically for their situation, they were coming up to the United States economically um, for economic uh, resources, and the whole point was to gain uh, enough money, gain employment to get enough money to pay for medicine for another member of the family so it wasn't because of actual violence that they were fleeing it was because of economic oppression and julia came up with her biological mother lupe and her stepdad carlos and when they came up from smugglers so they had paid some smugglers $7,500 us dollars to to come across the united states and essentially just get um, released to border patrol that was kind of the plan um But at the last stop in northern Mexico, the smugglers decided to to keep the biological mother as as a hostage. Uh, Essentially, it turned out into to being sexual exploitation. So then Carlos and and Julia came across the river and um, ended up in, in Border Patrol facility and then they were separated that separation is it's a little mysterious as to why they were separated but there was a a zero tolerance policy was happening at the time even though it wasn't public until several months later um which the zero tolerance policy was basically the u.s government trying to deter families from coming up to the united states trying to deter immigrants from coming and just separating mothers and and fathers and children right on the spot and we can talk about more more of that in a little bit but um Mm. Basically, uh, Julia was was uh, separated from her stepdad and then went into what's called Office of Refugee Resettlement. So. In the you know those pictures of the cages that you see at the border, um, they really are there. They really do exist. And in the front two um, sections of the specifically the facility that I visited, which was probably the one that Julia was was at as well, the front two sections are for parents and children. And then behind that is a section specifically for unaccompanied females. And then there's another section that's unaccompanied males. And so they all get placed into this holding cage. And within it, it kind of depends on the situation. They're not. Not supposed to hold them for longer than uh, 20 20 days something like that in, within a detention facility whether that's specific of that first one or another one that they go to after they're processed but it just depends on the situation and the manpower that CPB has at the time but then she was released to office of refugee resettlement and unaccompanied minors who then go through them, are placed with, typically it's someone that someone knows within the family somehow. And so for this specific situation, it was the stepdad's sister. She was already in North Carolina. And so Julia was placed with her in what's called a sponsorship family. And Office of Refugee Resettlement, the only thing that they do uh, to close their case is within 30 days of the the child being placed, they make a phone call. And there's no telling what's going to happen on the other side of that phone call. Somebody might answer, somebody might not. Um, but that's all that they are responsible to do. So again, so she was living with the sponsorship family. And the only way that we even were able to connect was because she started wandering the streets one day and while well, everyone was away from the home, and the police found her. And when they found her, she only spoke Spanish. So they ended up taking her to DSS And um, our social workers knew that we both, my husband and I both spoke Spanish. So that's how she ended up in our home.
1: Why would the goal be to get collected by CPB? Is it simply the goal would be able to get in, assimilate and not get caught? Like why would the goal be to be caught?
0: Well, um, I guess in some situations, immigrants are then released and then can kind of live out until they are sent back. Mm -hmm. That's not happening as much anymore with this administration. But I think in, specifically in their case, uh, I think it costs more money for to, to be smuggled uh, to the point where you cannot, you know, where you kind of avoid Border Patrol. That's that's going to cost more. Oh. Does that make sense?
1: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It does.
0: Our assistance isn't a drug. It going help us forget what we've done. I don't know what to do, so I'm turning to you in a prayer and a hope of a fool I don't know what to do so I'm turning to you I die to be healed in hell Die to be healed in hell in somewhere in between it all Somewhere in between it all In between the curing cause In between the curing cause Somewhere in between it all Somewhere in between, it all. Somewhere in between
1: it all. As I was reading through, and I think it's a chapter in Immigration uh, I'm saying that wrong I, I don't speak Spanish very well. Um, but you talk about, you know, as as Julia is coming up and it's, um is it Reynosa? Mm-hmm. Is that the name yep. of this? Yeah. So that name for me was so familiar. And so I pull it up on Google Maps and I just look on the other side of the border and it's because of McAllen. And, and I texted my mom. I was like, didn't Nana and Papa used to live in McAllen? And we would go down there and visit mm. them. Um, I am from West Texas, mm. not far not far, a couple hours from the border, mm. um, but Laredo, worst high schools that I would play. Wow. Laredo, La Mesa, Cunha, Presidio, wow. um, you know, all of those. So a lot of the the names that you were all familiar, but that one in specific, but mm. it made me just. You know, I was a child when I was there, but I remember not even having a care in the world, mm. and I can remember actually walking across the border, mm. having lunch, it was fine, and then walking back. Mm. Um, but that was way before nine eleven. Wow. That was, so all the rules were different.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, so when people talk about the border, it is always political mm-hmm. every single time, and it quickly becomes very hateful, mm-hmm. very fast. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to use a word that you or a sentence that you use when when the veil of of Oz is lifted from white evangelical American eyes. What does the church do with that? Mm. Like, because that is a big thing. Like it will. I can see people walking away from the church, people firing pastors because the pastor speaks out about it. Like, mm-hmm. how how can the church do that? And then, as well, how is the church currently complicit in not doing anything? Yeah, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think that we have an obligation as Christians to see the humanity in other people. And I think if we claim Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we also claim that the Imago Dei is imprinted in every single human being. And so that's where I think that we have to start with this stuff, whether we are Democrats or Republicans or independents, it doesn't matter. We we have to see the humanity in other people. That is, to me, that is a non-negotiable as a Christian. And I'm not saying that I always do that right or that, I, mm-hmm. that I'm called to do that perfectly every time. But we must call each other to do that because I feel like that is a divine impression that we have, um, that sets us apart from other people, from other belief systems that say that, that every single human being is made in the image of God. And for that reason, they have innate dignity that no one can take away. I think that's first and foremost where we start as Christians. And sadly, you're right. There are a lot of churches who are not talking about that or say are. It's, it's very negative. I've heard stuff from the pulpit that, is just so incredibly dehumanizing. I can't really believe it. And so I think whether you are a church leader or just a churchgoer, it's very important that we recognize that Imago Dei and that we also use language that reflects that. Um, So we don't call human beings illegals because a human being is not illegal. Actions are illegal, but human beings are not. And so we pay attention to the language that we use and we pay attention to how other people are talking about it. And we speak up when they're saying things that are derogatory or demeaning.
1: Is there ever been a time, at least in your research, and I say research because as a five, I feel like you've probably broken it apart. Cause that's, at least that's what I do. I find a thing and I latch on I don't let it go. <laughs> have we ever done it better than what we do now? Or have we just not been as aware of it? Like, mm. was it not vocalized or pub- publicized? Like, is there ever been a time that we as a country, and I don't mean like at the founding when literally people just came and go as they wanted, right. that we've done it better than now?
0: Mm, that's a great question. I don't know that there is. I think it's just kind of history repeating itself. I mean, when we think about Mm. forced family separations, we can go through our own history and realize that that's happened to every non-white group of people in this country from the beginning. It's nothing new. I do think that we have more visibility to it now than we ever have before. But also we have more visibility to the amazing um, Christian workers on the border who are in the midst of this and on, you know, on the battlefield every day, in and out, toiling themselves and their bodies and their families for the sake of that dignity.
1: I saw an article and I didn't read it in full. I think it was yesterday. And so for those listening, yesterday would be August 14th, right? Yeah. Yes, August 14th, where there was a minister at the border that was escorting unaccompanied minors or miners. Mm. Across, across the border. Mm. Now I don't know what happened with that. I'm assuming he got arrested because that sounds like something that would happen. Mm. But I remember seeing it and I read a little bit about it. And then the Washington Post said that I had read my amount of free (laughs) articles for the month. And so I didn't, I didn't pay for the rest of it. I only got three, three paragraphs because you know, why, why wouldn't I want to read a great story? Thanks a lot, Washington Post. Um, But I I found myself questioning, you know, would I have the gumption Mm. to do that? And I would like to say yes. Like it's easy enough to talk here in Central Virginia absolutely. and say, yeah, of
0: course, absolutely I would. I mean, right. shoot, let's do this thing. Right,
1: But I don't, I don't, I don't know that I could, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I'm sad to admit out loud.
0: But it's, but it's honest, right? I mean, if we don't recognize that we aren't, you know, that we always will want to be better people than we are. And there right. are moments in time where we just don't know. I think it's more holy to say, I don't know what I will do in that moment than to say, oh, I'll definitely sacrifice my life for this person.
1: Hmm. I would like to think that I'm a big enough man to do it.
0: Me too. And I honestly
1: think that I would. But I also know I have three children right. that are mine and a wife right. that I love dearly. And mm-hmm. that also matters. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm curious. So every time that I talk about immigrants from either Honduras or Colombia or any of the other what I'm going to call Banana Republics, most people have no idea what I'm talking about. They think that I'm talking about the clothing brand that the Gap Company bought. Mm -hmm. And you talk a bit about Banana Republics and American capitalism's Mm -hmm. complicity in creating the reason that they're even migrating to begin with. Mm -hmm. And most people I find have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I have to send them a bunch of reading and then they don't read it. Mm -hmm. So how would you kind of break that down? Like what is, as a nation, what has been our complicity? Mm -hmm. In even causing the problem of immigration into the country to begin with.
0: Yeah, well, there's a couple of different things. Um, The first thing is is with the banana republic. So, um, you know, we we have had these multinational corporations that go to other countries and essentially exploit people there. And in the case of Honduras, there was one situation in which it seemed like a really good idea where workers were offered a house alongside of their work, right? But then uh, the mistreatment that that followed to the workers and the exploitation that continues to happen throughout the world, especially when we are so greedy about our capitalism, that was then kind of used against them to say, you either keep this job, that's a horrible situation uh, that's treating you poorly, and you keep your house, or you lose your job and you lose your home. And so like you just said, you know, you have a family and you have a life that you're trying to protect as well, that you're trying to maintain as well. And so for these workers, that life was kind of juxtaposed next to, you know, good working conditions. So it really, uh, the the level of greed and oh gosh, just the exploitation that we do to immigrants, and especially even in the United States, when they come into the United States, uh, especially those who don't have papers, it's so easy for their employers to exploit them because the threats are just, Hey, well, if you don't do this, then I will report you to ICE, right? So Mm -hmm. these, these horrible working conditions that maintain the comforts that we have in, in this world have perpetuated this, the cycle. And it's, and it's really sad. You know, we, we often talk about as Americans, as white Americans, we often talk about how capitalism is the best, right? But when you really dig down into it, it's just as greedy as every other type of government, sadly.
1: I don't know that there is an ungreedy type of government because yeah. there's people that That's there's right. people that run them. Um I'm sure they're all in their most altruistic form, mm-hmm. good mm-hmm. as a thought, as a thought. That's right. Same, you can make the same case for the church. Yeah, You're good as as a thought, and then we really screw it up all the way back to. I was using this example the other day of I was talking about gun rights with somebody, which is way off topic, and he's like, "Well, you know." this, that and the other, and then you know why did Jesus you know why why if he didn't want us to be armed and be able to use that blah blah why why would he tell you know the disciples to get a sword <laughs> and then come I was like, you're reading that wrong like literally I'm gonna pray, don't hurt anybody like just hang tight I'll be back in a minute I'm gonna need I need to go talk to God for a minute and and then to come back and the guy lops his ear off and we both know you don't aim for an ear right. You aim for a head and you get an ear. Right. You don't aim for an ear. And that's if you right. are, man, props to you. That's, <laughs> that's marksmanship. And then and then Jesus has to apologize and look at him and be like, that's not what we're doing here. What's wrong right. with you? That's right. You're missing the whole point. And I think so often church misses the whole point. Mm. Um, you referenced someone that I have spoken to in the past, but I'm curious your take on it. And so uh, Kathy Kong, who talks about, you know, assimilation and raising your voice. Now, she takes it in a different direction. But I want to kind of get your thoughts on let's assume that things go perfectly. Let's assume five years from now the administration is in such a way that we actually genuinely think people matter just because they happen to be people. Mm. And we let them come in. How do we allow people to enter our culture without losing their own and without losing ours? Or is that mm. even the wrong way to frame the question?
0: I mean, I think that we're, we're dealing with this in all different aspects of life right now, uh, especially when we talk about diversity in the workplace and diversity of thought um, in, in the church, right? Trying to create safe spaces without uh, making sure that people assimilate to your dominant culture. Hmm. And, you know, I talk about this a lot in the book, but it was so difficult to do that uh, with Julia in our home because our home was our culture, right? Um, and just kind of realizing so much of, when I then went to her home in Honduras, uh, I saw things that I thought, "Oh wow, this is why." Like for example, going to the bathroom, it wasn't a big deal to leave the door open for her, but it's a huge deal for us as foster parents with a, a male child in our house as well. And you know, at, at her house and her home, that's not something that that you have to do regularly. And so, kind of recognizing that there are different cultures, I think, is first and foremost. I think Daniel White talks about is that his name talks about um, how easy it is for us as white Americans to not even realize that we have a culture. And um, it's so mm-hmm. important for us to first and foremost, recognize that we do uh, recognize yeah. that it's the dominant culture and then start kind of seeing things through other people's eyes. And I think step one in that direction is becoming friends. It's relationship. Uh, that's what justice really is to me is, is relationships. Yeah. And so Recognizing that and seeing like, hey, for my Honduran friend, it's not a big deal for a seven year old to be cooking supper. It's just not. But for us, that seems incredibly strange and that shouldn't happen. Well, why should it not happen? Like then yeah. kind of go through those those things. And I think in order to do that, especially in the church, we have to we have to really understand what the gospel is and what it isn't and how much our culture has co opted what we think the gospel is.
1: Let me break apart that last part. A lot of people say what the gospel is. What isn't it?
0: Mm. <laughs> the gospel is not white Jesus. I think, that's, <laughs> I think that's the biggest thing that we need to recognize is that the gospel came through a brown-skinned, marginalized man who, like you said, was nonviolent. Mm. And his idea of power is the complete opposite of my idea of power and always will be, and I will always have to recognize that. And work against mm. it and understand that humility is power.
1: Yeah, for the people not listening in the back, rewind it 15 seconds because Gina is preaching at the moment. <laughs> so just rewind it and then come back to here. i always been told, if you love it, then you gotta let it go. If it comes back, then it's
0: meant to. If it don't return, then it's bad for you. So i always been told, despite what we think we all know, there's more good than bad out here. And I think you're good for myself.
1: You talk a lot about lament, and I haven't touched on lament in some time, but if I remember right, it was either Mark Charles or Professor Sung Chung-Ra, who I know you quote, Mm -hmm. I don't remember who said it to me, but they had said something like 60 or 70 or 58 or some high percentage of the scriptures are lament. Mm -hmm. And if it's all right with you, you wrote a lament, and I'd like to read a bit about it if sure. out loud, if that's fine. Yeah. And then kind of get your take on what does that look like as a nation as we lament? Because we have a lot to lament for. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got a mass shooting every day, basically. Mm-hmm. I saw, I saw, I actually saw at a store the other day or an online store, I can buy a bulletproof backpack for my kids. Oh my gosh. How fantastic is that? That that's a thing. Wow. Um, and I hope the sarcasm is dripping through the microphone for that. Mm. But there is so much to lament. So yes. much to lament. Yes. And yes. so... Here is what you wrote. Uh, Let me find it. I lament for the adulting you had to... And you're talking about when someone left your home. I believe her name is Hold tight, and I'll get it. Karen. I lament for the adulting you had to do at such a young age, for the bonds that must get prematurely cut, for control you should have over your life but don't, for decisions made without your input, for the environment you had to grow up in, for the foster put before your name, and the prejudice that will come from it. And then you go on, and it is beautiful and gripping, but how do we wrestle with lament, both personally and in our families and then in our churches? And then what do we do with that? Because that's a lot of emotional energy that
0: Mm -hmm. will just
1: get wasted into nothing. So what do we do with all of that lament?
0: Yes. Individually, I think it's important, you know, especially speaking, both of us are fives. It's important to feel the emotions that we feel. Uh, I think I have to personally tell myself, don't not feel this right now. And I think it's easy for me to feel the pain of other people sooner than I can feel my own pain. Um I don't know that everyone is like that but I feel the pain of the world sometimes um and I'm willing to feel that pain more than I am willing to feel my own pain. And and I'm not saying that that's necessarily a byproduct of white evangelicalism but I will say that there's definitely that was definitely an influence um to that is that you know you're not allowed to cuss you're not allowed to cry you're not allowed to um if you do cry you cry in private. If you're a woman, it's okay if you're emotional. If you're a man, it's totally not okay. Never, ever, ever are you allowed to be emotional. And, you know, even when, like, when I was thinking about some of the different Black men who had been shot recently and, like, several different ones of police brutality, one of the moms was just crying and weeping over it. And it's important to listen to that. It's important to hear through the cuss words. If they're there, that's totally fine that they're there. Like, hear what she's saying behind that and don't just turn it off and say oh it's just a mother mourning a death no there's a lot more to it than that and so I think individually we have to recognize where we're at personally but then collectively as the church I think uh, we need to make more space for lament and it's easy in this world in this like current social media world to kind of show everything that is wonderful and good and nice and um, on Instagram, right? Everything needs, looks perfect. And we don't show our bad hair days, right? We don't show our big zits that that pop up on our forehead. <laughs>
1: Every day's a bad hair day. <laughs> Look at this hair. <laughs>
0: Look, you're already one step ahead of the rest of us. <laughs> um, but I think I quote Grisel Menina in there where she talks about how we should be allowed to be ugly in church, right? We should be allowed mm. to have these moments where we just break down, um, and it's okay to have an ugly cry. And it's okay to, to weep with someone else when they're weeping. And the, certainly the Bible tells us to do these kinds of things. Professor uh, Soong Chen ra talks a lot about the triumphalism of the American evangelicalism, right? And how easy it is for us to have praise songs and hype songs and all that kind of stuff, but not to really... Sing through lament and kind of use lament as a way to process our spirituality. And uh, yeah. I think it's very important for us to do that.
1: And so last question on lament, and then I want to end with something that I think could be a call to action. Maybe, maybe it isn't. Who knows? If a church, shoot, your church, my church, the church, just there's a church literally I'm looking at across the street, a Presbyterian church. If they could somehow figure out how to embrace lament, assuming they didn't lose every person that went to that church, because <laughs> I think that that would probably change the congregation base. Yeah. What do we do in the communities that we're in with that fuel, like Mm. with that reservoir of emotion? Like, What are some things that we can pour it into or what are some organizations, either at the national level or the local level or the state Mm. level, that we can pour that emotion into?
0: Well, I think that um, if I could give only one piece of advice, it would be to recognize that people who have been oppressed regularly understand lament a lot better than I do a lot better than we as white evangelicalism does. And so if we can find those churches in our community, because they're there Mm -hmm. and partner with them and pay attention to what they're lamenting over and what ways that they are not being treated fairly or the Imago Dei is being demeaned in their lives, then I think that's probably the most powerful thing we could do because they are part of our community and we need to be connected to them. And learn from them.
1: The last question is political on purpose, because okay. I also realized that I did not say the name of your book. And so let me do that real quick. When we're talking about people being separated by the border, mm-hmm. that is for today, that is an entirely political issue. It has mm-hmm. to be because it's a government issue. Mm-hmm. The church has a voice. I have a voice. Mm-hmm. The people that live on the border have a voice. Mm-hmm. Both sides of the border actually have mm-hmm. a voice, mm-hmm. not just my side.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you quote someone named Sarah Quezada. I, mm-hmm. right? I, yeah. I said that right? I think I said that right. That She says the inherent problem of Border Patrol is that we are addressing a humanitarian crisis with a national security response.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: How should we then address it?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Like
1: what, what should we, like, if you were the mm-hmm. person, I don't think it actually is the president, the person in Congress that goes, "Whoop, we're done. Yeah. What would you change? Because you have a touch, a pulse of it that a lot of us don't, mm-hmm. being that you've been there,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you foster children that have been there, mm-hmm. you, know, you have a different viewpoint.
0: Yeah. Um, I think if I were uh, in a position of, of national leadership, then I would go to the border and find the organizations who are already working there. And I would have conversations with them. There's, there's this amazing uh, Sister Norma. She's an amazing Catholic nun who works there. Uh, I believe it's in McAllen and runs a shelter, a migrant shelter to help um, those who are being released, but have to then go back and report to their court date. And there's, there's all kinds of other organizations who are working along the border. I have a whole list of resources on my website, GinaThomas.com, G-N-A-Thomas.com backslash resources that kind of goes through an actual list of things that people can do. But I think first and foremost, like find where people are actually being treated like human beings, uh, again, in that image of God and go replicate what they're doing.
1: So you just said the website, where else do people go to find your stuff? And I can't remember the due date of the book, October, what October 29th? 12th. Dang it. I knew it had a two it really <laughs> had only four or five options and I missed all of them. Um, October 29th. So um, that will be available everywhere that fine books are sold. That's one. I stole that from somebody, Luke Moresworthy, I think, but I like to say like fine books are sold. there. That's where you'll find that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll make the same commitment to you that I've made to a few people. As I walk through like books a million, if I see it, I'm going to move it to the end cap because
0: oh, that's thanks. my
1: commitment. That's my commitment to you. Someone will oh, probably man. fix it later, but I don't care. Full I'll service podcast up. host
0: right here. This I'm, is awesome. I
1: am addicted to books. And so <laughs> if I already have it in my hand right there. Awesome. Awesome. um, But where would you point people to, to engage with you, to converse about the book with you, to to possibly have disagreements with, like whatever? Where would you point them to?
0: Absolutely. So, best place to find me is on Twitter, um, Gina L. Thomas, G E N A L. Thomas. And then that same handle on Instagram, Facebook, all the places. Um, But I'm trying to quiet my life a little bit more and not be everywhere. So, Twitter Hmm. is the place to find me.
1: Well, thank you again, Gina, for coming on. Thank you. So put yourself in the mindset of Julia, you know, that traveled, was separated from her family. Literally, her family is trying to do what they can do to support themselves economically. And all the reasons that go with that, whether or not you agree with the premise or not, there are still reasons. It's still a human that bears the image of Christ and it still matters. So what do you do with that? How do you sit with it? And I still wrestle with what I told Gina, you know, I have so many responsibilities and obligations here. What do I do? And we touched on it a bit when I spoke with Jeremy Courtney. Not everybody's called to go. Not everybody's called to foster, but you're called to do something. I know that you are because we're all called to do something. What is it? Really hope that you were moved by the conversation today as I was. Very special thanks to one of my favorite artists, Heath McNeese, for your music in this episode. You will find the links for today's tracks on the Spotify playlist for Can I Say This at Church, which has also been turned into an Apple Music playlist. Check both those out. Please remember to rate and review the show. Tell a friend. Share it with a friend. I can't wait for us to come back together next week. Be blessed, everybody. Stagnant. We ain't the ones descending into madness We the ones that rose above the average Why? to yeah. yeah.